Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, welcome to week 14 of our Romans series. And this morning we come to the most disputed chapter in the book of Romans. And that's saying a lot because every chapter in the book of Romans has been disputed by some Bible theologian somewhere. But more has been written on Romans 7 than any other chapter in the Bible. So there's some confusion here. There's some disagreement here. There's all kind of things that happen here. Yet, Romans 7 is actually probably one of the most encouraging chapters in all the Bible because it's Paul being vulnerable concerning his own struggle with sin. So Paul's self-account here is very reminiscent of the classic uh, book by Robert Louis Stevenson uh, called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Stevenson, who was actually a believer, um, probably was, was certainly inspired by the struggle that Paul lists here in, in Romans 7. So we know the story, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll, a fine, upstanding citizen, is frustrated because um, it seems like inside of him there is a good part and a bad part, and the bad part seems to be holding back the good part. He calls himself an incongruous compound of good and bad mixed together. So Dr. Jekyll, being a, a chemist, develops this potion that separates the two parts of himself so that only the good part comes out at day, that's Dr. Jekyll, and the bad part comes out at night, and that's Mr. Hyde, whose name actually derives from the words hidden or hideous. The two exist alone with neither one restraining the other. The problem was that the evil part of Dr. Jekyll was far more evil than he ever imagined it would be. Mr. Hyde's every thought was concerning himself. He was spiteful. He was angry. He was vengeful. And that even led him to, to murder. Dr. Jekyll said, I was tenfold more wicked than I ever imagined. And Robert Louis Stevenson, in speaking through Dr. Jekyll, explains, I discovered through this process that man is not truly one, but two. It wasn't that I was a hypocrite. Both sides of me were completely sincere. Does that resonate with anyone in this room? Because it sure resonates with me. I wish I could say that since coming to Christ, I have found complete freedom from sin. I wish I could sit up here or stand up here today and honestly confess that my entire Christian life has um, been a reflection of Romans 6 and Romans 6 11. I've been dead to sin. I've been alive to God in Christ Jesus. But sadly, that's not the ongoing reality of my Christian life. After so many years of experiencing God's faithfulness, I still find myself trapped and entangled. I still find myself faltering and falling. I still find myself giving in to sin. Pastor Tim Keller provides a, a good synopsis of the passage that we're about to read, and it's really a, a good precursor of where we're going today in our study. He says this, all of life is a battle between two selves, but there's a different war before you become a Christian from the war that happens after you become a Christian. What Paul is trying to show us here is that there's a war between the selves that happens before you meet Christ, and then there's a war between the selves that happens after you meet Christ. The war between the selves before you meet Christ is a world without hope. You cannot win. The war after you meet Christ, you 
cannot lose. Today, that's going to kind of be our jumping in point and kind of where we're going today in the words. So let's dive in and behold the battle within, the battle that's going on right now in every single one of our lives in this room if we are a child of God. There is a battle between the Spirit of God and the flesh of ourselves, and it is a constant battle, and it doesn't let up. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word. We're going to read all of chapter 7 today. All 147 verses. So no, only 25. So see, you feel better now. Beginning at verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, today we come to this difficult, disputed chapter. Yet there is something, God, for every child of God in this room, and there's something for every uh, person who's not a child of God in this room, and, and also, Lord, those watching online. And, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this time in Romans, Lord. 
We pray that you would speak. I pray, Father, that you would minister to every single one in this room, every single person, Lord, watching online, that you would meet us right where we are today. That you would prove to be our Savior who is greater. Oh God, speak for we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. There's a story that many years ago, a British newspaper sent out an inquiry to famous authors, basically asking the question, what is wrong with this world? The writer G.K. Chesterton responded, he said, dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton, I am what is wrong with this world. Let me summarize today what we just read. I am a mass of contradictions. I don't want to be, but I am. I preach a gospel of peace, but I am not always driven by peace. I talk about Jesus who alone can satisfy the soul, but I don't always find my satisfaction in him. I celebrate a theology of amazing grace, even singing it loudly when we sing it together in church, but I often respond to others without grace. I speak about God's control over all things, yet I like to be in control of everything. Ultimately, I end up doing what I don't want to do. Can we not relate? I pray we can. The struggle is real. Brothers and sisters, the struggle is real between right and wrong, between good and evil, between holiness and unholiness, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And in essence, the, the struggle here that Paul is talking about in Romans 7 is of a man trying to live out the teachings of Romans 6. So in Romans 6, so Romans 6 through 8 is all about sanctification. It's about becoming more and more like Christ. In Romans 6, Paul says we're dead to sin. We, sin has no more control over us, meaning we don't have to give in. Yes, we will, but we don't have to. Sin has no more control over us. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. But in Romans 7, it's a picture of a man that's failing at that because he's doing it in his own strength his own power, his own ability, apart from the Spirit of Christ, apart from what the Spirit is doing, apart from his strength and his power. As a matter of fact, in Romans 7, the first person pronouns I, me, and my are used some 40 times, while the word for the Holy Spirit is only used once. So it shows, it's a picture of what happens when we depend on ourselves, when we try to do it on our own. In contrast, Romans 8 is the Holy Spirit is used 20 times. So we try to get from Romans 6 to Romans 8 in our own strength, and we can't do it. We have to lean upon him. See, the, the outcome of this struggle of the, the flesh is of utmost importance in all of our lives. There is a law that's operating inside of us. When we step out with a desire to do what is good, Evil follows us wherever we go. But not only does evil follow us, there's a war raging on inside of us. So it's not just like evil is just right behind us. No, there are times where we are held prisoner, held captive against our will by the flesh, by the evil that wants to happen in our lives. We have all been humbled by this war that we can't win. We've all, I pray, we've all been grieved by desires that we can't conquer or even desires that we can't control. 
Yet by his grace, by the grace of God, we have come to confess that what we really need is rescue. What we really need is is him. So in that ultimate confession, what we are saying is we understand our greatest need is God. And when we understand that, when we confess that, there's victory there. There's victory that comes from understanding who we are in ourselves and who we can be in him. So this morning, I want to lay before us three truths related to the battle raging within us. Three truths that come from Romans 7. And like I said, this is a disputed book. It is, um, some of you, when you heard me say that, you go like, oh Lord, Mike is going to confuse us so much today. And I might, I pray that I won't because I'm going to take this um, picture within as Paul is giving us an illustration in the first six verses. The next seven, Paul is giving us a picture of what his life was before Christ. And then the last 12, Paul is giving us a picture of the struggle, the struggle that takes place in his life as a child of God that also takes place in ours. So that's kind of where we're going. The first truth is this, the battle we can't ignore. The battle we can't ignore. The tension had to be palpable in this passage. Paul's Jewish audience had to be sitting on the edge of their seats because he is telling them that their entire life devoted to keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping the Mosaic Law, no longer has any bearing on their relationship with God. So Paul is saying you don't have to keep the law in order to be accepted by God. Jesus did that for you. Now, not that the law is not good, not that the law is not written in our hearts, not of all those things, but we don't use the law to get to God. The, the law shows us our need for a Savior that has done what our Savior did so that we might get to God. So Paul is saying, listen, this is good news, but it sounds like really bad news because it's not what you are used to hearing. But Paul is basically saying a death has happened, and because a death has happened, there's life. Just look at verses 2 through 4. It kind of gets confusing and a little uncomfortable. Paul says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, and here's the point, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. It's the point. So according to Paul, the law is whatever you think proves your worth or whatever gives you acceptance. So whatever, think, whatever you think makes you acceptable before God is the law that you are trusting in. You are. We're married to that. It was the center of your life. It's how you found your worth, your acceptance. It's how you found your hope for getting through the things that you were going through. Yet when you became a Christian, you died to that. You died to that which you thought gave you acceptance. And instead of um, being alive to that anymore, you died to it, and now you are alive to Christ. And the, the point is, listen, there is a law that binds, and then there is grace. We are either under the law or you are under grace. Pastor Tony Evans put it this way. He says, when you, when you walk into a house, you can tell the difference between a grace dog and a law dog. A law dog always has its tail tucked underneath. It's intimidated by its owner, afraid of its owner. The owner says, do this or I'm going to spank you with a paper. It's a miserable dog. But a grace dog's tail is wagging when its owner comes home because there's a relationship there. 
The dog just wants to be with its owner and make them happy. But think about that. Grace dog, law dog. Now, there is no corollary in the cat world. There is no such thing as a grace cat, only evil cats. I'm sorry. Um, if you don't agree with that, take it up with the person who made cats. So God made dogs, Satan made cats. It's obvious for all of us um, in this room. Sorry, take it up. It's just that way it works. But the point that, and please don't let that be a, a hindrance from moving forward with me. Okay, Heather and Sarah, don't do it. Don't let it happen. So the, the picture is that Paul is saying is that marriage is an apt illustration of the Christian faith. It's not about rules. He's saying it's not about regulations. It's about a loving relationship. Let me give you a better illustration. We were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he did not understand our weaknesses. He came home every evening and asked, how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything on the to-do list that I gave you to do? So many demands, so many expectations. And as hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy Mr. Law. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings and he was always right because we failed. We failed miserably. But his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. Do better tomorrow. But we didn't because we couldn't. We couldn't do better. Then Mr. Law died, and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening, and the house is a mess. The children are acting a fool. Dinner is burning on the stove. And he knows that we haven't been completely faithful to him throughout the day. Still, he sweeps us up into his arms and he says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect to be despised. We expect to be rejected. We expect to be humiliated. We expect to have all of our failures pointed out, but instead he treats us with grace. And we are so glad that we belong to him now and forever. For you see, being, being married to Mr. Law only pointed out our failures, but it never changed us. It never changed us, but being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within. I, I put this, the battle we can't ignore, because you can either be married to the law or you can be married to Christ, but you can't be married to both, and you can't be unmarried. You will either marry yourself to law, what you think will achieve your rightness with God, all the work you have to do that will never get you there, or you will be married to the grace that God has poured upon you. But write this down. We will live to please the one we're married to. You will live to please the one you're married to. If you are married to the law, you will live to please the law, and it will never work. You will be miserable. 
But if you are married to grace, you will live to please the one who has showed so much grace upon you. This is the battle we can't ignore. We have to be married to one. Which leads us to number two, the battle we can't win. The battle we can't win. So verses 7 through 13 is Paul sharing his pre-conversion story. So what life was like for the Apostle Paul, this great religious man, before he met Jesus. In verse 7 through 9, you see on the screen it says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. When the commandment came, sin came alive. I want you to think about some of the signs that we see on a daily basis. Keep off the grass. Do not touch. No trespassing. No fishing. No U-turns. What do we normally do immediately upon reading signs like this? Either we are inwardly tempted to do that which we are being told not to do, or we actually do it. We take selfies of us touching the sign that says do not touch or put our foot on the grass that we're not supposed to put our foot on. This kind of the picture either, listen, we are inwardly tempted to do exactly what we're being told not to do. When we see the law, we know what we're not supposed to do and we know what we're supposed to do. Yet the law awakens us to sin because it shows us what sin is in explicit terms. So we can see on the paper before us, do not do this. We can also see on the paper, do this. But the second we see it, our flesh cries out against it. The second we're told, don't you ever do this, there's something within our flesh that says, you should probably do it. I mean, anytime we hear our parents say, don't you ever, there's something within us that goes, well, maybe. Maybe, just maybe, I need to do that. And the same thing in our flesh. As soon as we're told what not to do, we want to do that very thing. And Paul's point is that under the law, we all fall short of God's glory. The law stands over us like a, or with a whip. And every time we mess up, the law is there to beat us. The law is there to show us and share with us that we have missed the mark, that we have fallen short, that we can't. Before the law of God, so when the law of God is before us, we face a battle that we cannot win because we have a heart that cannot obey. See, the, the issue with the law is the, the law could never change the person's heart. A law could only show you how sick you were. Let me give you another example. If you are in bed today and you're sick and you had the flu, and I show up in your room and I start giving you these commands... I say, thou shalt not have a fever, thou shalt not feel weak, thou shalt not have the chills, thou shalt not cough, thou shalt not have a headache. For each law that I give you, the more I'm multiplying the ways that you can't keep it. You're going to basically say, I get it, I'm sick. That's what you're trying to show me. I am sick. And here's the point, the harder you try to keep the law, the worse it's going to get. If you're dealing with the flu and I walk in and say, thou shalt not be weak, and you say, oh, I'm getting up and I'm getting ready and I'm going to go, you're going to make it worse. This is the point. C.S. Lewis said it well. says, no one knows how bad he is until he's tried to be good. No one knows how bad he is until he's tried to be good. Then we realize 
I can't be good. I'm just not good at it. And so Paul is saying this is similar to what happens spiritually. The harder we try to keep the law, the harder we try to be good, the harder we try to do the things that we think is going to lead to acceptance, the worse we get. The worse we become. We turn into an awful person. Let me say this clearly. No one ever comes to Christ um, in faith, even today, without a clear recognition of their sin. Meaning, we never come to Christ until we look in the mirror of the law. And the mirror of the law shows us how bad we are. The mirror of the law shows us. It gives us this outline of this beautiful picture of what God has designed. And we don't fit in it. We're not in it. And we can't. And that's the picture of it. It shows us that we can't. The problem is, if you ignore that and you say, but I can, it's a battle you'll never win. You'll never win. You will never earn your way. You'll never achieve your way. You'll never accomplish your way to God. This is a battle we can't win. Which leads us, lastly, and if you have fallen asleep through this, wake up and let's finish strong. Number three, the battle we can't lose. So no one, amen, I don't know if you like didn't amen because you were afraid I was going to think you were asleep or you just didn't amen because you're wondering how long this last point's going to take. Don't know where we are. But anyway, the battle we can't lose. So beginning at verse 14, Paul shifts in a weird sense from speaking in the past tense from 7 to verse 13 to now speaking in the present tense. And some people say, well, that doesn't prove much. And some people say, well, and I, I believe that from verse 13 all the way, or 14 all the way on, Paul is showing us what his life is like in Christ and the struggle that a Christian even has. Oftentimes, as we depend on ourselves and on our flesh or on our own ability instead of depending on the Spirit of God. In fact, in verse 22, Paul even says, For I delight in the law of God. No non Christian would ever say that. No non Christian has ever said, I delight to do the law, I, I delight in the law of God. So what Paul is describing here is the Christian experience, or to say it differently, the normal Christian temptation, which is wrestling with our sin in our own strength, in our own abilities. Listen, we must not make the assumption of believing that we can live the Christian life on our own. Did you know that the Christian life is impossible? Did you know that? I mean, Jesus said becoming a Christian is impossible with man, but it's possible with God. So becoming a Christian is impossible, and living the Christian life on your own is also impossible. You can't do it. You can't live the Christian life. You can't live to please God on your own. So guess what? God helps us out. He gives us this amazing gift called the Holy Spirit. Before Christ, you had this spirit in you called the unholy spirit. It is the spirit of flesh. It is what you desire. It's what you want. It is the unholy spirit. But when you trust Christ, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And guess what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you? Make you holy. It's what the, so the Holy Spirit wasn't given to us so that we could become more unholy. The Holy Spirit was given to us crazy enough to make us holy. But I want you to stop and think about this. Did you ever think or realize that there was no war that raged within you before you became a Christian. There was no war that raged in you. Prior to trusting in Jesus, you were shackled in sin. You were a slave 
to the enemy. But once you trusted in Christ, you became an enemy of hell. In your unsaved state, you were no threat whatsoever to Satan. Satan was like, we're good. Me and you are absolutely good. But the moment you turned to Christ, Satan says, we're not good anymore. We're not good anymore. And I'm coming after you. And Satan is going to do everything that he can to make us ineffective, to make us unfruitful. And listen to how Paul describes his life in verse 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If you're not going to say amen, you can at least say oh me or ouch, because this is us. This is us. Then verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out on our own. We can't do it. Then look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Our our flesh is like the structure of a house that's been eaten up by termites. And we can paint the inside and the outside. We can put down new carpet and we can bring in all kind of new furniture. But you haven't fixed the issue. You still have termites. And brothers and sisters, we are in a battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are in a battle. And the unfortunate part of your Christian experience and my Christian experience is that we continually lose the battles. And I don't know about you, but I lose them in embarrassing ways. We don't just lose battles. We lose them in embarrassing ways. Yet because of a relationship with Christ, who is greater than the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are in a battle that we can't lose. We can't lose this battle. Yes, we're going to make mistakes. Yes, we're going to mess up. Yes, we're going to falter. And even when we cry out like Paul, look at verse 24. Paul says, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. A.W. Pink, a theologian of days gone by, has an especially forceful comment on this point. He says, This moan, O wretched man that I am, expresses the normal experience of the Christian. And any Christian who does not so moan is in an abnormal and unhealthy state spiritually. The man who does not utter this cry daily is either so out of communion with Christ so ignorant of the teachings of Scripture or so deceived about his actual condition that he knows not the corruptions of his own heart and the abject failure of his own life. Then he says this, The closer he draws to Christ, the more will he discover that corruption of his old nature and the more earnestly will he long to be delivered from it. Oh, wretched man that I am, God, deliver me. Deliver me. The closer we get to Christ, the more we see our sin and the more we cry out for his deliverance. If that's true, then also this, this, the opposite is true. The further we get from Christ, we don't see our sin and we never cry out to God to help us or forgive us at all. At all. And then Paul continues, verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul says, who's going to deliver me from the body of death? And this imagery here that Paul gives is very interesting because get this. 
In his day, if you kill someone, one of the ways that you would be punished, besides just dying instantly, was by having the dead body of your victim tied to your body. So one of the ways they punished a murderer is having the dead body of the person, dead body that you murdered, tied to you. You'd be face to face with the person you killed. When that dead body was tied to you, that cadaver signed your death warrant because the, the, the decay of that cadaver would eventually penetrate the pores of your skin, poisoning your own blood and killing you. So you were looking death in the face as you dragged that body around with you. And what you wanted more than anything else is for that body of death to be released from you. And that's the gruesome imagery. That's what Paul is saying. He was dragging around the dead carcass of his sinful flesh. And it was dead because it had been put to death by Christ. But here's the point. Paul's saying, it's still dragging me down. Brothers and sisters, our flesh, our sinful flesh has been put to death in Christ, but it still drags us down. It still drags us down. It still brings us down constantly. It weighs us down continually. Who will deliver us? Who will deliver us from this body of death that weighs us down? And finally, we get to the good news. Verse 25, Paul says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. Brothers and sisters, in this life, the struggle remains. Falls and failures will happen. But if you are in Christ, you can't lose. You can't lose. Follow with me here. December 1941 was a dark time for England. The war was not going well, but on the morning of Sunday, December 7, 1941, when Winston Churchill heard about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, he walked into his office. He called FDR, and FDR told him, well, we're, we're all in the same boat now. Churchill wrote in his memoir, no American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing the U.S. was on our side was the greatest joy to me. England would live. Britain would live. The rest of the war was simply proper application of overwhelming force. I went to bed, and I slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. Overwhelming force transformed Churchill's attitude from helplessness to hopelessness, from assured defeat to assured victory, from unable to rest to restfulness. And think about this. Nothing tangible had changed in Churchill's life. Hitler was still on the offensive. Battles were still uh, raging and would be waged. Yet, he said, victory is awaiting. Victory is awaiting. Brothers and sisters, there is an enemy who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Wars are still waging. Battles are waging all around us. Yet, victory is awaiting Meaning even on the darkest day, even on the day that we give in, that we see sin take us further than we ever thought it would, we can find encouragement. 
In a weird sense, the internal Nazis of our sin and our flesh may still be wreaking havoc, but the outcome of the war has already been written. We live in 1941 England. We live in this day where we see the enemy pressing in and desiring evil, and we see the war taking on all around us, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, 1945 is coming. D-Day is now, but V-Day is coming. Victory is coming. It is ours. Brothers and sisters, through Christ, it's ours. Let me end this way. Sometimes I look at my own heart, and I get so discouraged. Why do I still struggle with self-control and anger and pride? Why does pride still pop up in my life so quickly and so easily? Why do I almost never instinctively give other people the benefit of the doubt? Or even more fundamentally, why, why is it often that it seems like my desires for God are, are cold? That my desire for repentance is so weak? It's not that I want to do good and I get tripped up. There are days, brothers and sisters, I don't want to do good. I don't want to do good. There's days that my flesh convinces me that that way is better, safer, easier. Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Who will deliver us? Yet let me say it this way. We are wretched. God is not. God is not. Through his son, he has rescued us. And through the spirit of God, he is changing us. And the closer we get to God, the closer we grow in our relationship with Christ, the more we see our sin and the more we want deliverance from it. The more we seek his grace every single day of our lives. Here's what I know. Here's what I know for all of us. Total victory might not come today. Total victory probably won't come tomorrow. But we can live today with the assurance that there is victory. There is victory. And that assurance changes our disposition in the fight. From helplessness to hopefulness. From assured defeat to assured victory. From unable to rest because we're working to earn our way to resting in the cross. Brothers and sisters in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, we can't lose. We can't lose. The war has been won. The war has been won. Rest in that today. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to call up a worship team. And I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And we're just going to seek the Lord in this moment. Maybe there are those here today that are maybe watching online that in this moment you've come face to face with the reality that you're, you're living like Paul did before salvation, trying to earn your way, trying to do all the good things that you can possibly do. And it's a losing battle. Today, join the winning battle. Trust in Christ. Turn to Christ in this moment and you will be saved.
call out to him and he will save you now. He won't wait to save you 100 years from now. He won't wait to save you 10 years from now. He won't wait to save you a year from now. He will save you right now. He will save you. Come to Jesus. For others in this room, for the child of God in this room that struggles with that war and desire, the spirit and the flesh, and it seems like the flesh wins more than the spirit. It seems like we lose more battles than we win. The reality is if, that's, if that is the reality of our lives, it's because we're trusting in ourselves, leaning on ourselves and not submitting or yielding to the Spirit of God in us. Yield now. Yield to Him now. Victory is ours, and although defeat will happen, the war has been won. And when we fail and when we falter, there is grace and there is mercy. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, not from some unrighteousness, but from all unrighteousness. The battle is yours, O God. The victory is yours. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.
encourage y'all all to come back at six o'clock for our taste of nations fundraiser um, there will be ushers at the doors for